people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Good evening and welcome again to An Economy One. I'm going to get right into our next guest. Been looking forward to this all afternoon. Joining me now is Dan Bongino. He is the uh, former Secret Service during the Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama administration. He's a contributing editor and host of the Renegade Republican podcast at conservativereview.com. Author of the New York Times bestseller, Life Inside the bu- uh, Bubble, Why a Top-Ranked Secret Service Agent Walked Away from It All. And his most recent book, and I think we talked to him a couple uh, months ago about that, The Fight, A Secret Service Agent's Inside Account of Security Failings and the Political Machine. Dan, welcome to An Economy of One. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you uh, taking some time and being with us. been listening to your podcast on a regular basis. Started uh, to see kind of a, a recent theme and, and looked at some of your columns you've written on uh, conservativereview.com. And uh, I was talking to my producer, and I said, well, let's have him back. Uh, you seem to have quite a uh, 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 an opinion going on socialism, and that's a uh, subject near and dear to my heart, at least in uh, relation to capitalism. Um, what, what, I, I guess that it's it's uh, becoming such a subject with Bernie Sanders lately and how much publicity he's getting, support he's getting. And he's an out-and-out, confessed, proud of it socialist. Yeah, I mean, it's just stunning. I mean, Thomas Sowell once said, you know, only an intellectual could, you know, could fall in love with a system that has like a 100% success rate of failure, right? <laughs> now, it's not his exact words. Forgive me, Thomas, for uh, but Thomas Silver, a famous Hoover Institution uh, economist, just a great guy. I'm sure you're familiar with his Absolutely. work. Absolutely. But it's just, as it's probably stunning to you as well, it, it's just astonishing that there is another generation of people that are about to get suckered mm-hmm. by a system where if you were just to do a basic internet search and put in something simple, I'm not even getting into the advanced economics of third-party payers and all that. Just right. put in failed socialist countries, and you can just read for yourself what happens. Death, starvation, destruction, yep. economic collapse. And yet you and I both, sadly, tragically, I mean, I'm, I'm being sarcastic about it, but I'm deadly serious about this, tragically are looking at another generation mm-hmm. who are potentially going to be snookered by, uh, by a failed system, which is going to cost them their prosperity. It's just sad to watch. You know, in, in, in talking about socialism and, and economics and stuff, we, it's easy to, to reference, you know, the Weimar Republic, uh, right. you know, Portugal, um, uh, uh, Zimbabwe, that kind of stuff. But right today, today, every day on the Internet, every day in one of the major newspapers, it talks about Venezuela. And right. that is our mo- I mean, that is is it 
you know, that is the epitome of socialism. Why is that being ignored? Why? I mean, nobody's calling Bernie to task on that. Nobody's calling President Obama to task. Nobody's calling Congress to, to task on this. It, it's it's hidden in plain sight right in front of us. Well, sadly, because we have a, you know, a generation of Walter Durantes, you know, from the New York Times. Yeah. I mean, you just anybody can go and Google what happened in Zimbabwe and Weimar and Zimbabwe, where they had to, you know, lop off zeros from the money right. because their government ran out of bills to accommodate people because <laughs> they printed so much money. Right. I mean, these stories. It's you know I started probably like you I I did not have a sincere like academic interest in being a PhD economist working for you know the president's chair right. council of economic advisors right. I just kind of started maybe ten years ago like hey why, why do so many different economists have so many different opinions did a little homework went back to school got a finance degree started reading up Friedman Soul Schumpeter and you know what I found out. These guys don't know anything. I'm not talking about Friedman and Soul. I'm talking about you have people in government that I would I believe me when I, I mean this with my entire heart. Having worked inside the White House and hearing a lot of these conversations, these people talk so confidently. If you told me tomorrow you were going to be uh, appointed the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. I would I would send you a cake because it would be the best decision because I would trust you so I mean it I'm not even kidding like you would do such a better job because you're a rational guy who understands his own limits yeah, and the people yeah. in DC don't and this next generation of of kids is just falling prey to the same tricks socialists used to get the Obama Pelosi generation and me and you have to deal with it yeah it's it's interesting I just read something. I don't know, the last week or so about economists and how so many of the economists today are what I call and Thomas Jefferson called political economists thinking that they have a model that will will force human behavior, not realizing that human behavior reacts to the regulation and the laws instead. And yeah. they, they think they can guide us through those regulations. Well, Russ Roberts, who's another genius economist who does a, a podcast called e Econ Talk, he's another Hoover Institution guy. He just did a, an op-ed uh, interview piece in the Wall Street Journal where he spoke about exactly this. Here's just a quick example from one of his old podcasts. He talks about how economic research it claims to give you models for human behavior, but how the models fail. He talks about how econometrics, you know, like there's a study, they, they gave this example of a study of AIDS medication where they, they had a control group and a group that got the medication. And they found out in one of these studies that the, the control group and the group that got the medication were both getting the same results, and the results weren't very good. So, well, what's the problem here? There's got to be something wrong with the medication. You know what? There wasn't anything wrong with the medication. What happened was the people with the disease felt bad for the people in the control group, so they all agreed to split the pills, figuring if someone got the <laughs> sugar pill. So it, you just nailed it. These economists cannot possibly figure out all of the confounding variables that complex human beings will impart on a decision. Right. And talking to us, like President Obama does and Bernie Sanders, like if we just gave him our money, it would right. all be figured out, and you and I would be more prosperous tomorrow, is outrageously naive and, frankly, just stupid. Don't listen to these people. You know, don't. They're, they're false gods. You know, one of the things that, that I've said for years as part of the problem with politicians and policymakers and that kind of stuff is they all truly believe that the economic pie is fixed. They, they don't understand that we can add value with our brains, with our labor, 
that if I have more money than you, then I took it from you. And the pie is not fixed, especially in America. Right. They have this zero-sum view, and mm-hmm. it, it's not—it's so counterintuitive that you almost have to be ideologically blind to believe it. I mean, think about what the income inequality warriors on the far left are telling you. They're telling you that evil rich people got rich because they took all of their money from people who are poor. Right. But, folks, think about that. Does that even make sense? Like, if you're poor— you don't have any money or any capital or any assets. How is it that this evil rich person came and confiscated it from you? The irony is, you know who's really confiscating your money? The federal government. They're right. the biggest thieves of all, and yet they get off scot-free. And you were right, by the way, about Venezuelans. I didn't mean to avoid that question. All they got to do is Google Venezuela right, right now, and you can see what socialism really does. The pictures are horrendous coming out of that country. Oh, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's going to play out. We we know there's going to be riots and discontent, and we know that one of the next actions of of the leader there, and I forget his name, I you know Chavez, but it's he's dead, so it's his, yeah, his, yeah. Uh, he's going to bring in the military. You, you yeah, know he's that. going to start killing people and uh, ruling with an iron fist and. Uh, until it absolutely uh, doesn't work anymore. Uh, Dan, while I got you, I, 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 I know our time is short, but you wrote a, a column, and I forgive me, I forget the date, but it was recent uh, for conservativereview.com about three questions to, to challenge liberals. And, and you know, uh, one of them is talking about the rule of law, and, and one is uh, limiting government debt. But the one that really got to me, was the third question, and what special knowledge do government bureaucrats think they have about the economy? And that that just, wow, yeah. that, that just says it all, Dan. I mean, it, what, what are these people that have never had a job, never made payroll, never, you know, woke up at 3 in the morning wondering how they're right. going to pay their bills for the business the next day, what gives them the authority or the right to think they know what's best for you and me? Compound all of what you just said, because I know we're short on time here. Bernie Sanders has never had any job. He's ever mm-hmm. compound all of that with the fact that he's never met you. Yeah, he doesn't know you. Now, Arnold right. Kling, another economist I respect, he calls it the knowledge power gap. How you have the knowledge where your kids should go to school, you know what you'd like to eat for dinner, you know what car you want to drive, what job you want to work in, what educational uh, field you want to uh, partake in. Right. You have the knowledge, but in the in the socialist government, in the growing United States government, you don't have any of the power to make those decisions. The knowledge power gap is growing. These people have never met you, and why you would think they care is beyond me. Got to ask you, a new book on the horizon for us to to dive into, or can't you reveal that yet? Uh, no, I, it, no, there's no DEFCON 1 secrets with me. I'm an open okay. book, uh, no <laughs> pun intended. I, I don't know. I only write books because I, I don't mean to sound pretentious, but I, I don't need the money. A conservative review does right by me. Yeah. I only write books because I really feel like I have something to say. And right now I'm thinking about an economics book. I just want to make sure that uh, I have the right audience for it. So I'm thinking about it. We'll, I'll let you know. I'll, okay. I'll, uh, we'll fire it out on a press release, and we'll, we'll, do, we'll come back on your show. I'll okay. Sure well, I, I really appreciate the fight. Uh, block. Blogger extraordinaire, you got to look him up. Thirty-minute uh, blogs, it, it's it's just wonderful to listen to. Dan, I really appreciate your time. Really appreciate what you do for for all of us and, and for this country. And I hope we can can chat again soon. And you got it. Hey, thanks for the time. Up next, we'll find out where to get 
$170 hamburger. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, being a hamburger lover, whenever I see a headline that says uh, you can get a hamburger for 170 bucks, I take notice. And I have, uh, I wouldn't really call myself a hamburger connoisseur, but uh, I've had a lot of variations, even had Kobe uh, hamburgers, Kobe beef. And uh, I saw this headline, well, all is not what it seems, apparently. Uh, This is Venezuela. Venezuela, a hamburger costs $170. Now, we talked to Dan a little bit about Venezuela and socialism and, and how that always ends up. Socialism always ends up the same way. And that is essentially a bankrupt country. Looking at Venezuela, they've been spiraling the drain for quite a while. The official conversion rate for their currency, boulevards, is about 6 to 1. That's the official. Back in 2003, it was 1.6 to 1. Today on the black market, it's 1,060 to 1. Now, you can have really bad things happen to you in Venezuela by exchanging dollars on the black market but uh, people are doing it they have to 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 survive we've seen on the internet riots 5,000 people stormed a grocery store on a rumor that they had something they didn't even know what they just had something and this is hyperinflation if you want to see firsthand in real time what hyperinflation is and how it affects a country, Venezuela is it. That's the movie to watch every day. The people in charge are like politicians anywhere else. They're power hungry. They want to stay in power. They want to control everything, everything in your life, everything in the economy. So they are printing currency, printing boulevards, like crazy to the point where they just recently took delivery of five billion with a b billion banknotes enough to fill three dozen 747 cargo planes at the same time venezuela is selling off its gold selling off the only asset that is real money pay off their debts. Now, this is hyperinflation. This is wheelbarrow money. This is what the Weimar Republic in Germany went through in 1922 and 23. If you remember reading about those times, the German government felt that they could fix things by simply printing more money, printing more money, printing more money. Well, that works for a very, very short period of time. And then prices take into consideration this extra money and prices go up. So you got to print more, which causes prices to go up, which causes you to print more. And that's exactly what's happening 
in Venezuela. We've seen it many times. Most recently, I guess Zimbabwe is uh, one of the more recent. Argentina in 2000, same thing, hyperinflation. And the, the movie plays out the same way every time. There's riots. Eventually, mark my words, the government will bring in the military, and eventually the government, current government will be killed or overthrown or something, and they'll have a reset. They'll restart. But right now, people are using wheelbarrows to haul their money to different places to buy it. My favorite story from Weimar Republic is a gentleman had a wheelbarrow full of Deutschmarks, and I uh, went into the baker to buy a loaf of bread. When he came back out, all his Deutschmarks were on the sidewalk. Someone stole his wheelbarrow. The wheelbarrow was worth more than all the Deutschmarks piled inside. That's what's happening in Venezuela. Inflation, you know, we talk about our Federal Reserve, and they want 2% inflation. Well, why do they want inflation? I mean, Bernanke, when uh, uh, he was part of the Federal Reserve, made a promise to the American people that he would do whatever it took to not have deflation, meaning he would print money for as much as he needed, for as long as he needed, to create enough inflation to keep prices going up. Well, once you let that genie out of the bottle, it's very hard to put him back in. But Venezuela is the movie to watch. That will give you insight as to what poor monetary policy does and what the consequences of that policy will be. It's playing out right now, right in front of you. Coming up next, I'm going to chat with Diana Fort Scott Roth. She's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and director of the Institute's Economics 21 program. We're going to talk a little bit about President Obama's new overtime rules. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Diana Fortscott Roth. She's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and director of the Institute's Economic 21 program. She's a columnist for MarketWatch.com. It, it, this is an, it, exciting. She was a former economist with the U.S. Department of Labor, chief of staff of President George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. She's also co-author of Disinherited, How Washington is Betraying America's Young, and author of Regulating to Disaster, How Green Jobs Policies are Damaging America's Economy. Diana, welcome to An Economy of One. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Oh, I'm glad you could uh, give us some, some of your time. I, I read a lot of your your columns and, and uh, 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 got on to uh, economics21.org uh, to, to oh, read. Oh, great. Uh, Isn't it a great site? Uh, it's terrific. A lot of good information there. I'm going to give you an open-ended question to, to start off here. What do you think of the new uh, 
overtime rule? I think they're a real travesty because workers aren't going to get any more money mm-hmm. because employers are just going to lower the base wage. That's actually what the chief economist for Vice President Biden said. He's called Jared Bernstein. Mm -hmm. And then second, it's going to cost a lot to comply with the regulations, and people don't want to clock in and out of their jobs. What these new regulations do is they say anyone paid under $47,000 a year, which is almost median income, have to keep track of their hours even if they're on salary, so that if they should work more than 40 hours a week, they get paid overtime. And they have to get paid overtime. They're not allowed to have a choice of time off instead of overtime. So if a mom, say, works late one week, she's not allowed to have time off with her kids the next. And a lot of millennials, a lot of working parents, other people like flexibility, and they're not going to want to be clocking in and out of their jobs. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I didn't really realize, and I didn't read through the the 83 pages or whatever it is of the, the actual... Uh, uh, legislation, but one of the things I didn't realize, but in I, I think it was in one of your columns, you talk about if a, if an employee gets an email and answers it on his own time, technically uh, they got to keep track of that time. So it's, right, it's, or, or else or else they could be suing the employer for not paying them overtime right. for that email answered. And so, in order to just prevent those lawsuits, the employer is going to have to say. Uh, no emails in the evening or else set aside an hour of the workers' time for them to be able to answer those emails. Now, there are a lot of people who say, like President Obama, if you work longer, you should be paid more for it. But often this is reflected in the base salary, and a lot of people look on it as a perk, not having to keep track of those hours and being on salary rather than on hourly work. You know, what's what's interesting, one of my companies, I have five moms and between the five moms i kid you not there is 24 children and stepchildren and so what we did in our uh business there is i instituted flex time so Uh they they got two days a month that they Mm -hmm. can flex go to doctor's appointments go to kids programs at at school and stuff and all they have to do is make up the hours uh and, and we call it even Uh, That's going to be a little more difficult under this uh, legislation, isn't it? It really is, yes, yes. And I have uh, a couple of young people working for me, and they sometimes work in the evenings to put up the e-brief that we send out every morning and to post material on our site. And in return, I say, you can take extra vacation when you go home to be with your family. And that wouldn't be allowed either under the new rules. I would have to keep strict track of their time, pay them overtime for those evening hours, and I wouldn't be allowed to give them time off to go see their families. Yeah, it it really takes away uh, that flex time and what we as employers call uh, comp time, where we just kind of balance it all out. Yeah, comp time's not allowed. Right, exactly. Uh, Comp time is not allowed for that group of workers, which uh, is really surprising because President Obama says he's in favor of more equality. Comp time should not be an upper income perk. Mm -hmm. It should be something that everyone has access to if that's what they want. Now, one thing that uh, also kind of shocked me on this and kind of bothered me a little bit, they they raised it from, I don't know, 23,600, something like that, to 47,000. Uh, four hundred and seventy-six dollars, or 
or something is kind of an odd number. But people over that salary uh, aren't necessarily exempt from these overtime rules either. If if their job description or their activities or something are are such, they could be subject to those overtime rules also, couldn't they? Uh, yes, yes, they can. The employer has to prove that uh, they are in a supervisory capacity, or else they also uh, can be subject to those rules. And whether you're entitled to overtime or not, it's the largest area of litigation in employment law, bigger than sex discrimination or anything else. Yeah, I read something that in in 2015 there were 8,800 lawsuits around the Fair Labor Standards Act. I mean, 8,800 exactly. lawsuits. I mean, you know, once again, that that leads employers to, to rethink their employment uh, situations. And uh, what do you think uh, the, I mean, I know the, the answer from my standpoint, but from a national standpoint, I mean, you're wired in, uh, former chief economist at the Department of Labor, uh, Council of Economic Advisors for George Bush. What do you think from a national standpoint, what do you think the, the, the majority of employers are going to do? How are they going to react to this? So for the majority of employers, their employees generally don't work more than 40 hours a week, but they're going to have to put in place this burdensome uh, system of clocking in and clocking in uh, out of the workplace, of keeping track of the hours so that the employees don't sue and say, I did work more than 40 hours a week. So they're going to think it's just an expensive waste of time. I'm sure they're going to say everything's fine as it is, and like you, you provided the two days flex time, and they probably think what they're doing is fine, and they don't. This is one headache they don't have to deal with. And just like I mean, I in essence, uh, I'm an employer. I have people who work for me, and this is certainly what I think, and also what my employees think too. We're, we're talking with Diana Forchcott Roth, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and director of the institute's E21. Uh, program. I want to ask you, you know, with these lawsuits and the employer, uh, the employee uh, claiming possibly that they're entitled to overtime and the employer defending, where's the burden of proof? I mean, is the burden of proof going to be on the employer or is it going to be on the employee? The employer is supposed to put into place the mechanism uh, that allows him to check on what the employee is doing. So that's one reason telecommuting might not be permitted, uh -huh. because if the employee works from home and says, I worked eight hours every day, but then turns around and sues the employer, saying, no, I didn't really work eight hours a day, even though I filled out my timesheet for eight hours a day. I really worked 10 hours a day, and you owe me two hours a day overtime. Uh, then that employee can win. So that's really? why it's up to the, yeah, so that's why it's up to the employer to carefully keep track of those hours, which makes telecommuting more difficult. Yeah, it'd be almost impossible at that point because, you know, you get a disgruntled employee for whatever reason at some point, they can go back and, and, and claim that. 
My goodness. Exactly, yes. And that's also why it's just surprising that this president would have put it in, because he's always talked about family flexibility. Mm-hmm. There was even a, There's even a council for women and girls where they talk about how important flexibility is in the workplace. So for a president who's concerned about flexibility, it's just very surprising he would have put this into place. You know, it's it, salary is one of those things where, <clears throat> you know, you're paying someone to complete a job or complete a task rather than than pay by the hour. And we've got story after story after story of employees that that put in the time, went above and beyond the call, learned the job, added value and moved up the organization. Um, I got to believe this is really going to discourage not only employers from promoting people up like that, but the opportunity for employees to to show their value and and extra worth to an employer, isn't it? Exactly, and that's especially true of startups where there isn't a lot of money to begin with. Mm. Uh, People work very long hours, and in exchange, they get equity in the company afterwards. Well, that won't be allowed anymore. These employees in startups, many of whom don't have a lot of money to begin with, the company doesn't have a lot of money, won't be able to put off paying overtime. They won't be allowed to say, uh, when, uh, when we're successful, your stock options are going to be worth more. They're going to have to pay these people overtime now. Wow. Now, is that fall? Is that going to have the same effect on, on like bonus structures in general, not just equity bonuses, but just cash bonuses? Because in the bonus, uh, only part of the bonus counts toward that that forty seven four or whatever it is, doesn't it? Ten percent of it can count towards it, and the bonus has to be paid quarterly, not annually. Oh my goodness! So it can be up to ten percent, so up to four thousand seven hundred can be bonus. So it's very restricted. You can't have that big Christmas bonus that you used to have. Yeah, and bump them over the the threshold. That's incredible. Now you know. Once again, you're you're very in tune to the the political side of things. Very knowledgeable. A lot of experience there. Uh, I got to believe that President Obama's motivation for doing this was not necessarily so people could spend more time with their families. I mean, he's got to know the impact of what this law is going to do. What what what's his motivation for for implementing this? Is this an alternative minimum wage play here? Uh, the head of his wage and R division, who's called David Weil, has written a book called The Fishered Workplace, and it's nothing to do with fishing. He means fishered as in the workplace breaking up. Oh, and good. he has written that this is a mistake. There shouldn't be so many independent contractors. There shouldn't be the sharing economy. We should be back in a 1950s or 60s era where people work for one company for a long period of time and get a lot of benefits. And so he has been trying to put this more into practice. That's why this is just one of the efforts the Labor Department has been making, uh, this overtime rule. They've also moved against independent contracting. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've moved to say that franchises are joint employers of the parent company. Uh, And the National Labor Relations Board, which is another Washington agency, uh, has moved in similar directions. This is absolutely incredible. We've been spending a little time with Diana Forchgott-Roth, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and director of the Institute's 
E21 program. Diana, I really appreciate your your time with us tonight. We're going to put all your information up on our, our website and, and Facebook and uh, uh, E21.org or Economics. 21.org. Yes, right. Economics21.org, and you can sign up for our daily e-brief if you're interested in getting the latest economic news in your email box every morning. It's a terrific website. I, I spent a lot of time looking through it, and uh, you're doing great work there. And, and uh, once again, I appreciate your time today, and hope we can tap you on the shoulder again uh, sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Up next... We remember Memorial Day from one of the great presidents, Ronald Reagan. We'll listen to his tribute and have some thoughts of our own next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Well, tomorrow's Memorial Day, and that's uh, always a uh, special time. I like to remember the family members and, and friends, but also the veterans. And I had a couple stories that um, kind of disturbing. I don't know if you saw those this week, but there was a, uh, a town in uh, Georgia, I believe, that uh, put out 79 handmade crosses in honor of Memorial Day for all the soldiers that uh, were from that community that had, that had passed away in America's wars. And hours after the crosses were posted along Highway 92, an unnamed resident called the office of the city manager Barry Atkinson, and asked whether a Christian display was appropriate. They asked, were all those fallen soldiers Christians? Not knowing the answer to that, the city manager said, ooh, it opened our eyes that we might have missed something here, and we immediately took corrective action. What was the corrective action? Took all the crosses down. That's where our political correctness has got us. Second story I saw this week was there's thousands, over 4,000 living vets that have been declared dead. Now, when that happens, all their benefits stop. Their monthly checks stop. Everything stops. And then they have to go to the government, Veterans Affairs, and prove that they're still alive. They have to prove that they're still alive. One guy had to do it twice. Had to prove he was alive twice. Statement from the Veterans Administration, we sincerely regret the inconvenience caused by such errors and work to restore benefits as quickly as possible after any such error is brought to our attention. That makes me feel so much better, so warm and fuzzy. Well, in honor of Memorial Day, I dug out a uh, uh, part of a speech by Ronald Reagan, and we're going to play that for you, and 
make that the end of our show tonight. So I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, but we have never been unwilling to pay that price. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. Each one of those markers is a monument to the kind of hero I spoke of earlier. Their lives ended in places called Bellow Wood, the Argonne, Omaha Beach, Salerno, and halfway around the world on Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Porkchop Hill, the Chosin Reservoir, and in a hundred rice paddies and jungles of a place called Vietnam. Under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Treptow, who left his job in a small town barber shop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We're told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf, under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. We must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. It is a weapon that we as Americans do have. Let that be understood by those who practice terrorism and prey upon their neighbors. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 